This is a TSN original podcast. Just a quick note for listeners, this podcast includes some adult language and subject matter. I want my boy drink next Wednesday night. So you start doing more. And more and more. And it's just it becomes a circle. And then it's then it's one day, it's like you wake up, you have to have it. You know, now you're psychologically addicted to cocaine. You have to have it. In terms of your cocaine habit, what uh, volume were you doing? I eventually got up to where I, I, I was doing $1,000 a day. W5 is the longest-running news magazine show in North American television history. And this audio is from a feature that aired on the program in 1983. The person being interviewed is one of, if not the most, heinous thugs in the history of hockey. How much is that in terms of the product, in terms of the substance? Oh, maybe 100 injections every 24 hours. 100 injections? At this point in the interview, you can see Steve Durbano, a bald 30-year-old former pro athlete, nodding his head quietly. And you can tell that he's acknowledging just how far he'd been caught in the downward spiral of drug addiction. You reached a point at which you could not afford to buy the drug on the street anymore. Right, I couldn't afford to buy it. Not once my hockey career was over. Steve Germano on top of Billy Smith, and they're all into it. I don't think it's any real secret of who Steve really was. You consent to assault. Everybody does. That's part of the game. It's wild here tonight. There was a switch in him that only he could switch on and off. I think he just was an asshole. We were the... Bonnie and Clyde, the people you stayed away from. It's an old story. This playing career ended back in the 70s. Unless it's physically violent, I don't think you have much of a show. I decided to go down to South America and buy it at the cheapest price and bring it back myself to support my habit. American authorities refer to the problem as an epidemic. It was like the rich man's high. Oh, let's get some cocaine. It was like an excitement about doing it. And with hockey, you know, there's the, the light side and then there's the dark side. And I think the enforcer usually ends up on that dark side. Germano getting a big round of applause. Can I ask you why you picked Germano? That's Rosie DeMano, a columnist for the Toronto Star. And it's a fair question from Rosie. Why did I choose to do TSN's first feature podcast on Steve Durbano? a player who has been buried in the annals of hockey's most violent era, a guy who made his mark in the 1970s by terrorizing and taunting his opponents in both the National Hockey League and its rival, the upstart World Hockey Association. It's interesting that Rosie asked this because I first learned the many layers of Stephen Durbano from one of Rosie's published stories in the Toronto Star. A few days after Durbano's death in 2002, Rosie wrote an obituary of the hockey player. Usually, of course, obituaries are celebrations, stories that memorialize someone's deeds and accomplishments. They are, essentially, the final words on someone's life. Yet what Rosie wrote about Steve Durbano amounted to one of the most scathing memorials I had ever read. Rosie begins by recounting her final exchange with Durbano, a conversation they had when he was in jail. She writes, The last time I spoke to Steve Durbano, he threatened to kill me. It gets worse as I continue to read through the obituary. 
She attacks Durbano as a hockey player and as a person. She writes, It's considered bad form to speak ill of the dead. But in that case, there would be little to say now of Durbano. He was, in my opinion, an awful person. And I'm just not going to make any excuses for that. First time I ever dealt with him was late 70s because it was at the Detroit Olympia, the old Olympia. And I was there doing a profile on Lindsay and I was just sitting in the stands during practice, minding my own business. And they were doing some line drills and he missed the net a couple of times in a row and then just hurled his stick at my head. Rosie wraps up the obit with this. Durbano was a thug, a pimp, a druggie, and a psycho. Other than that, I'm sorry he's dead. That's just the tip of the iceberg with Steve. His rap sheet on and off the ice is unrivaled by anyone in pro hockey. And he was much more than a mid-level criminal. Steve didn't discriminate. He assaulted fans and police alike to say nothing of the countless other hockey players he attacked. And then there were the drugs. In the 1980s, after his career was over, he was caught smuggling nearly 500 grams of pure and uncut cocaine, worth an estimated $1.5 million in today's currency. If his life was a movie, you'd have a hard time believing some of these stories. But this isn't a movie. It's real life. The NHL loves to celebrate stars like Gordie Howe and Wayne Gretzky players whose goal-scoring skills paced their way to stardom. But the league is far less comfortable talking publicly about guys like Durbano, players who scrapped on the ice and struggled off of it. Even if you're a diehard hockey fan, there's a decent chance that you don't know who Steve was or much about him. Neither did I. Steve started playing in the NHL in 1971, only five years after TV networks had begun to regularly show NHL games in color. He played his last full pro season in 1979, years before the advent of the internet. But while Steve did play, he must have been a favorite of newspaper reporters and headline writers who described him in stories as tempestuous and hot-tempered, violent and poiseless, and a notorious bad man. He was styled as the biggest supervillain to ever lace up skates. But anyone who knew him off the ice described him as a different person. Dale Talon is the general manager of the Florida Panthers. But years before his current role, he was Steve's teammate. Tell me a little bit about what you remember about your first impressions of, of Steve. I liked him immediately. I mean, he was just such a friendly, like big teddy bear kind of guy. Even so, the media coverage of Steve was consistent. It was consistently grim. His professional career started out on the right foot, as it didn't take long for the Rangers to call Steve's name in the first round of the 1971 draft. He was a tough, talented hockey prospect. He was no stranger to suspensions and fines. In fact, he led the OHA in penalties in two separate seasons leading up to his draft. Many scouts took notice of the six-foot-one, 200-pound defenseman who was groomed by the Toronto Marlies to be a professional-level fighter. The scouts would sit with their clipboards, paper and pencil, and scribble away. They'd nod in approval. Steve would fit right in in the NHL, they thought. He was entering the game, after all, 
during the heyday era of the Broad Street Bullies and the Big Bad Bruins. Violent exchange probably steps up the tempo of the entire play. It doesn't have to be a foul. It, it can be a violent hit of some kind or other, perfectly legitimate. It just fires up a team. That's the NHL president at the time, Clarence Campbell, describing how he thinks hockey should be played during an interview with CTV. So you're condoning roughness on the ice? No, I think I, I, when you say condone, I, I encourage it. I encourage roughness on the ice. That's what the game is about. It's never been a panty-waist game, at least not, the, not any kind of hockey that was any good. It was a different era of hockey. Violence was a way for the NHL to carve out a niche in the crowded world of professional sports. Football was king, of course, but it was also a sport where players were tossed out of games for fighting. The same was true for baseball and basketball. Hockey was the lone team sport that glorified fighting. I remember seeing one TV commercial promoting the NHL that featured a black outline of a player's prone body laid out on the ice. The same kind of outline police would use when marking out a dead body's location at a crime scene. Violence was so common in hockey that in 1977, one of the biggest Hollywood actors, Paul Newman, starred in a movie that glorified hockey fights. They're burying us alive! Boys, every scout in the NHL is out there tonight with contracts in their pocket. They come here tonight to scout the Chiefs, the toughest team in the Federal League. If you think a slapshot comparison is a bit of a stretch, you should know that in 1977, the year the movie came out, Durbano was a teammate of Dave Hansen, one of the Hansen brothers from the movie. And before there was the Charleston Chiefs, there were the real-life Birmingham Bulls. You know, it was one of those guys that, thank God he was on your team, because one, he could play the game when he wanted to play, but two, you know, you know he was just a wild man at times on the ice. Coming up after the break, he witnessed it with his own eyes. Dave Hansen explains that no player, icon, or journeyman was ever safe when Steve was on the ice. And the details behind a legendary fight are finally revealed when we return. Did you know there's a new way to get TSN? TSN Direct lets you stream all your favorite live sports and so much more. And it's all in stunning HD. All you need is internet. What are you waiting for? Go to tsn.ca slash subscribe. It's hard to imagine a player who fit into Campbell's vision of hockey better than Steve Durbano. He was the most violent of the violent, and he had a hairpin trigger. Hockey's a rough sport, and I've heard a lot about Durbano. Some good, a lot bad, a little bit outlandish. Some stories have left me scratching my head, wondering if someone was putting me on. Guys are doing their typical doctoring of their hockey sticks, uh, getting ready for the game, because back then it was wood sticks, so, you know, you had the rasps out, and you were shaving the heel or, you know, this and that. And I'm watching him, and he's actually shaving the end of his blade to to put an edge on the whole straight edge of it. And, I, and I'm looking at him, watching him, and I come out, and I says, Derby, I says, you know, what are you doing? 
He says, I'm getting a stick, and I'm getting ready for the old man tonight. I'm going after him. Well, he was, his plan was to go after Gordy, of all people. Yeah, Steve was getting ready to carve up Mr. Hockey himself. Think about that. The greatest of them all, yes, the greatest of them all. And I'm thinking to myself, man, you're going after Gordy, you are nuts. You know, once he got going, and it, and it often didn't take much to get him started, but once he got going, it took our... It took an army to get him settled down and, and pull him off the, the fracas. This isn't the only story of Steve attacking another team's star player. I got suspended a couple of times on big suspension. What'd you do? Just out of nowhere, Steve Romano, I saw it, jumped on top. He went after Bobby Hall and he, he literally flew off the bench and came across the ice and, and tackled Bobby Hall. I touched the golden jet. Kenny Linson was getting his eyes gouged in a beef, and I jumped the bench. Durbo probably just had in his mind that, well, you know, if I'm going to take anybody out, I'm going to take Bobby, and just flew across the ice and tackled him, and it just became a big Donnie book. The defenseman Steve Durbano charged from the bench and blindsided Bobby Hull to trigger a bench-clearing brawl, something the WHA cities have grown accustomed to as the league slowly destroys itself. 13 players were given penalties in that final fight. I hit Hall from behind and grabbed him and his head came back and smashed me in the nose and gave me a bloody nose. I just held on to it. When they broke it up, I went immediately into the dressing room. I got 10 games for being first man off the bench. Actually, he got 12 games and his suspension came with an additional warning. Steve would receive a lifetime suspension for his next overtly violent infraction. But get this, that wasn't even the most outlandish event that allegedly involved Steve and Bobby Hull. While I was talking to Dave, there was this interesting moment where he cleared Steve's name from one tall tale, and a few minutes later offered his memories of an even wilder story. Is that when he may or may not have ripped the toupee off of Bobby Hull's head? Well, let me get some clarification there. That may have been the same game that that happened, but Durbo wasn't the one that did it. I'm the one that ripped Bobby's to pay off. Quick reminder that back in those days, hair pieces were actually stitched with needle and thread into people's heads. So after the game, we're all in the showers, and in Winnipeg at that time, the uh, the bus used to drive down underneath the arena, but also I think the fans were allowed to walk back there because... Suddenly, Glenn Sommer, our head coach, comes flying into the locker room where half of us are in the showers and the other half are either towering or getting dressed, and he starts yelling, Durbel's in trouble, Durbel's in trouble, and we all go running out there bare-ass naked, and he's in a big brawl with the fans, and we all jump in to try to, you know, let one rescue him and, you know, take care of the rest of the trouble. Steve was a hit with the fans, and violence was beginning to define the game of hockey. In a story in the New York Times setting up the 1974-75 pro hockey season, Stan Fischler addressed the state of the game. Here's what he wrote. Big-time professional hockey prepares for the 1974 season more schizophrenic than Dr. Jekyll and Cinderella combined. NHL and WHA leaders can't seem to make up their collective minds whether they want their product hyped as a refrigerated second coming of D-Day or an athletic ballet on ice. At the moment, blood holds a slim lead over the finesse, but Gore threatens to score heavily in the months to come. 
There are some who fear that the new season will be dirtier than Deep Throat. Just follow the money. Now the bases are empty. Oh, the league will get a little richer in this one. The same year, a young Toronto lawyer named William McMurtry was commissioned by the Ontario government to study the problem of violence in hockey. Here's McMurtry's take on the issue. I mean, Clarence Campbell, when he was asked whether or not there was any, they owed any moral responsibility or whether hockey was too violent, his answer is merely, well, we're 95% sold out, so it can't be wrong. Well, I think that's irrelevant. I mean, if I had the franchise, the next public execution, I'm sure I could be 100% sold out. Oh, a tremendous ride. Ferguson is getting pummeled. He's getting beaten to a pulp. Schultz continues to pummel Howard with a right hand as he holds him off. What a battle. Hockey was played the way it's supposed to be played, okay? I mean, what was, the, what was my purpose? My purpose was to protect my teammates. This is Dave Schultz, the man who, to this day, holds the single-season record for most penalty minutes. If somebody ran one of our players, one of our better players, they better turn around because someone was coming. Flyers penalty on number eight, Dave Schultz. Two minutes for hooking. Schultz was a fan favorite in Philly and public enemy number one everywhere else. His most vivid memory of Durbano was a nationally televised game live from the Spectrum in Philadelphia, PA. Tonight's National Hockey League action comes to you from the Spectrum in Philadelphia. Our equipment guy was yapping at him from the bench and uh, there was a face-off. The face-off was just outside, right near our bench. And Cabano, just as soon as the puck dropped, he went over and speared him in the face. But on the ice, I become what the fans want to see. And that's the bad side of me. Like most incidents that involved Steve, there are multiple, differing versions of events that often depend on who you talk to. In Philadelphia, Flyers trainer Jim McKenzie reportedly said to Durbano, I guess we'll get another goal with you out on the ice. But the St. Louis newspapers, who had to deal with Steve on a daily basis, quoted Durbano saying McKenzie had insulted him with an Italian ethnic slur. The one fact that everyone could agree on was that the Philly trainer, after his run-in with Steve, had two teeth knocked out and needed eight stitches to close a wound. Violence, it's catching. It takes you down as it takes away the sport. Violence, oh, it's wrenching. It's the sickest sound. People are Why do you come to the hockey game? What do you like about hockey? When Schultz fights, what do they do? Beat the other guy's head. You could argue... And easily, I should add, that these enforcers were paid for their ability to fight and bring in the crowds. But the price that these guys would pay would leave a lasting impact on many of the game's enforcers, including Schultz. The only thing I enjoyed about it was, the, you know, um, the newspaper headlines or fans loving it, you know. Uh, but I didn't. It, that, it was no fun. You know, some guys love fighting. Uh, I didn't. I hated it. Did Steve feel the same way? It's impossible to know. But what I can say is that every teammate, friend or family member said the exact same things about how Steve behaved. 
you know, he was a bit unpredictable on the ice. And the players that played against him knew it. That was the thing. Nobody knew what Dillard was going to do. There was a switch in him that only he could switch on and off. That it wouldn't take much for him to snap, you know, he had a very short fuse. If you think you've heard everything there is to know about Steve, you'd be mistaken. We're just getting started. Coming up in the next episode, after a career-threatening injury, Steve develops an addiction to cocaine, which propels him to commit even more erratic and scandalous behavior. He assaults an official, threatens his general manager, and leaves the crowd at MSG booing him off the ice after an unforgettable night in New York. And later in the series, I discover some shocking revelations that help to explain Steve's unpredictable behavior. Now DeBano throws a right hand, hits the linesman, hits him again. We told you those linesmen have a tough job. He says, if you don't give me my $400, I'm going to break both your legs. They're booing and hissing and throwing shit at me. I grabbed my ankles and I mooned the crowd and went off the ice. This story is reported and hosted by Rick Westhead. Senior producer for Durbano is David Crixt. Executive producer is Ken Bolden. The show was written, produced, and edited by Sam Glisserman. Mixing and sound design by Sean Pattenden. Archival research, fact-checking, and locating guests for all interviews was done by Takia Singh and Emily Hanscamp. Our theme song was composed for us by Jonathan Gallant of Billy Talent. Show art and design by Vince Arnone and Eric Kirk. Website developed by Pete Stewart. Thanks to everyone who chose to share their stories about Steve with us. John Durbano, Phil Roberto, Rosie Demano, Lisa Ostrick, Gil Leger, Karen Pappen, Dale Talon, Dave Hansen, Dave Schultz, Ken Linsman, and Chuck Arneson. Special thanks to Matt Cade, Darren York, Corin McCallum, Daniel Zakchevsky, Brett Mitchell, and Stephen Durbano superfan Bruce Massoff for all their help on this project. Footage courtesy of W5, CHCH, the NHL, the WHA, Warner Brothers, and Universal Pictures. For more bonus content, head to tsn.ca slash Durbano. There you can check out some archival photos, a character list, and the entire credits for the show. Thanks for listening. <laughs>